God, we thank you that you have sent your word into this world of sorrow. And uh, that, uh, Lord Jesus, you are a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, for you are totally acquainted with us. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would preach your gospel this morning into us. And that we would trust that uh, our Father is good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, uh, this morning's uh, text tells, about, uh, tells us a story that is, that is about these 10 valuable coins. And our family um, has been collecting coins for a while. You know those state coins where the name of the state is on each quarter. Uh, together with the kids, we've been collecting those for a while. And the first... Ten, the first ten states are particularly valuable now. So I brought, I brought the coins just to, to show you as a way of illustration this morning. One, two, three, four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, crap. I, uh, I, lo- I lost one of the coins, and that's bad because my wife, the kids are going to be mad at mad at me because um, we've been. Coll- coll- oh, you did, Scott. Well, th- well, well. Thanks. That's yeah. That's it. That's that's uh, Massachusetts right there. All right, uh, Mass- Massachusetts. <laughs> I missed you. You, you shouldn't have gotten, you shouldn't have gotten, it was wrong of you to get lost. It, it, was, a, it was wrong and I'm going to make it right. In fact, I'm so mad at you for getting lost, you can just stay lost forever without end. I feel better. Justice was satisfied. I mean, really, don't you hate it when things get lost? Last August, um, we went hiking just to the west of our house on Mount Falcon with my son's dog, Inga. This is Inga, and uh, Inga has kind of become our family dog. Everything was just going fine. We're all hiking up there. It's around noon or so until Inga sees a squirrel, and Inga just runs off into the wilderness, into the, into the woods, and, and uh, we ended up looking.
asking for her all afternoon. Finally, around five o'clock, we're walking on this trail in the back, almost, uh, I mean, giving up, wondering where Inga was going. Inga, Inga, where are you? And all of a sudden, out of the trees, out of the bushes, comes Inga, bounding down the trail, slobbering, jumping all over us. And I exclaimed, exclaimed, Inga, Inga, we missed you. We hated Inga. We hated when you're lost. I'm so mad at you for being lost. You can just stay lost forever, forever without end. <laughs> now, she, she followed us back down to the car, but we wouldn't let her in. She, she uh, showed up a couple days later. She found her way back to the house, but we shut the door. Almost every day now, she shows up at the front door. She's like a bag of bones. I mean, there's chunks of flesh ripped out of her back like coyotes or cougars or something have gone to her. She whimpers and she begs, and, and I just say to her, Inga, you made your choice. Justice requires that I honor your choice. You chose to be lost. Don't you hate it? When things are lost. This is my daughter Elizabeth, long about two years old. There are no words to describe how much I adored her. One afternoon, long about 1992, we went to a backyard party at the home of our church business administrator in Danville, California, Rick Noling. I, I told Elizabeth, and I had to tell her things like this often. I said, Elizabeth, look at me. Now, I want you to stay right here with me. You must stay with me. And I don't want you to go close to that pool, that, that swimming pool. There was a swimming pool in the middle of the party. I remember I was uh, enjoying the party. It was a great party, wonderful party, eating hors d'oeuvres, laughing, talking to someone when I, I just happened to hear this faint kerplunk in the background. I turned around and Elizabeth wasn't there. I scanned the party immediately and realized Elizabeth was lost. Then I walked over to the edge of the pool, looked in the pool, and my heart just sank. It, it froze because in the bottom of the deep end, at least six feet down, floating in silence was my treasure, my joy, my daughter. Without a thought, Without, without, a, without a thought, hors d'oeuvres, uh, new clothes, uh, people looking at me without a thought, I dove into that pool and I found my daughter. I remember standing on the side of the pool holding Elizabeth so tightly against my chest, feeling her little heart beat next to mine, and as everyone stopped at the party and stared at us, I just began to kiss her, and kiss her, and kiss her, and kiss her. I, I just kept kissing her over and over and over again. And then I stood her on the edge of the pool, and I said, Elizabeth, it was wrong of you to fall into the pool. Your punishment for getting lost is to be forever lost. And I pushed her back into the pool. Everyone at the party said, Peter, it was right that you honored her choice. <laughs> and you did what was just, ecdecasis. 
To this day, each of my other children, each of my three living children, they'll say to me, it's good that Elizabeth was lost in the pool, for it makes me grateful that I was not. You are a loving and just father. (laughs) Now, I should probably confess that part of that story wasn't true. It really was true up until that part about me pushing her into the, into the pool. And actually, I made up the story. I mean, that, it, that was Inga, but I made up the story about Inga. And when I was yelling at the coin a few minutes ago, I really didn't mean it. But you knew that. Why? Because my story was fundamentally absurd. It was It was absurd. I mean, can you even imagine a world in, people would, in which people would, would think it was just or right to punish the lost with endless lostness? Now, that would be one messed up world. That would be like a world trapped in an, in an immense and complex lie. Well, my three stories are absurd, but maybe more than absurd, maybe they're, they're evil, <laughs> And to think that way is evil. To think that way is to be profoundly lost. Chapter 15, verse 1, Gospel of Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing. Nobody made them do this. They, they They were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That implies that Jesus actually hosted dinners for, the, for these people, tax collectors and sinners, which sinners, which in Luke often implies prostitutes, but they were all sinners. And Jesus refers to them as the lost. So that's a fascinating way to put it, the, the lost. Well, as Francis um, said in staff this week, gosh, Jesus hosted Dinners for sinners. And he did. He hosted dinners for sinners. That's what Luke is saying. So, of course, the Pharisees grumble. And that's understandable because, well, uh, sin hurts. And, and God hates sin. And so they must be wondering, well, don't you care uh, about sin? Well, Jesus did care about sin. I mean, Jesus even said, if your right hand causes you to sin, it would be better to cut it off than to be thrown into Gehenna where the worm doesn't die, the fire is not, not quenched. And he went on to teach us that, that all wickedness doesn't actually come from our hands. He said, if your hands, it comes from our hearts, which means like we got a heart problem. We need like heart surgery. No one has taken sin more seriously than Jesus, the man that committed no sin. So understandably, the religious leaders are kind of wondering, Jesus, you're hosting dinners for sinners. What are you going to do about sin? 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him uh, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He actually tells three stories about four things that are lost, a lost coin, a lost sheep, kind of like a lost dog, and two lost children. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness, which is, a, which is an interesting question, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, party with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous dikas persons who need no repentance. Are there 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? And if a shepherd left 99 sheep in the wilderness, wouldn't the 99 be lost? They just wouldn't know that they were lost because sheep just follow the tail end of the sheep that's in front of them. Well, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who, who need no repentance. So think that one through. To maximize joy in heaven, what would need to happen? All would need to be lost. And all would need to be found. All would be humbled. And all would be exalted. All would be consigned to disobedience. And the shepherd would have mercy on all. What a party. But, 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 but you can't experience the party. You can't experience the joy of being found until you admit to yourself, I'm lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, drachma, 10 coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. She doesn't stop until she finds it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What makes us think he'll stop before he finds the lost? Are they worth less than a silver coin? What woman, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, when she's found it, she calls together her friends. And her neighbors say, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Apolesa, also translated in English Bibles for some reason as destroyed, but it obviously means lost right here, that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. And now something in you may be feeling a little excited about that. And something else in you may be feeling a little offended by that. Um, like, hey, I'm not a coin. I'm not a sheep. I'm not a little kid. That's an invalid analogy, Jesus. Coin doesn't have a choice. Coin doesn't decide to be good. It just is good. It's valuable. And a sheep doesn't have a choice like a sinner has a choice. A dog or a sheep can, well, they can choose to go right or left. They can choose to chase a squirrel or not chase a squirrel. But, but a dog or a sheep can't choose the good in freedom. They cannot choose love. Well, can a person choose love or, or choose to love? God is love. So real love is God. 
So any good choice must be God's choice. But we seem to think that we can make that choice. And we definitely don't believe that that choice makes us. So something in us is offended. Jesus seems to think repentance is not something we do in order to be found, but that being found is repentance. Repentance is metanoia in Greek. It means changed mind or, or new mind. And Jesus acts like that new mind is a gift. So we cannot find the way. The way must find us. By definition, um, to be lost is to be unable to find the way. So you can't, you can't should yourself into being found. Do you should on yourself? You can't should yourself into being found. In the story, the coin doesn't find the woman. The woman finds the coin. The sheep doesn't find the shepherd. The shepherd finds the sheep. The sinner who repents is not finding the way. The way is finding the sinner and creating the saint. So you see, Jesus is saying something like this. It's like you religious people think a coin creates its own value. And a stray sheep offends his shepherd. You must think a person creates his own value and lost people offend me. The shepherd. Their savior. You must think salvation is finding yourself. You must think that you create yourself. And so you don't need a creator. And so you reject the creator's word. And so you reject your own creation. How could a person possibly be more lost than that? Well, I'm just saying what Paul says in Ephesians. We have been saved by grace through faith. And this not of ourselves, this faith not of ourselves, lest none should, should, should boast. And if you're like me, you say, amen, yeah, hallelujah, preach it, brother. But what about sin? What about sin? You, you may have noticed we're about to enter an election year. <laughs> and every candidate has a plan to do something about sin. And the plan is not dinners for sinners. Now, don't make too much of this, but it seems to me that there are tax collector sins and there are prostitute sins. As we learned from the last two parables in Luke 18, we're all tax collectors and we're all prostitutes. But if you're more of a tax collector, you'll be worried about the prostitutes. And if you're more of a prostitute, you'll be worried about the tax collectors. And, and, and so there are some folks pretty worried about income inequality. And I must say that the statistics I find to be rather um, alarming, but, but what do you do about it? Jesus said, if you have two coats, so you ask yourself, do you got two coats? If you have two coats, give to the one who has none. So should we pass legislation about coats? Or maybe increases taxes on guys like Bill Gates, because I bet he's got a freaking lot of coats, you know what I mean? One candidate one candidate advocates a flat tax because that's what they did in the Old Testament. But they also mandated socialism in the Old Testament. Every 50 years, they were commanded to return all property to its original owner. So that's like 49 years of capitalism and then one year of outrageous socialism called the year of Jubilee. 
I'm not sure uh, we should do that. I really don't know what to do. I'm not sure that we should tax uh, Bill, Bill, I don't sure I want to tax Bill Gates anymore because supposedly he gives half of his income to charity. But the more his income goes to the government, the more our government is likely to go to war. And that's another thing that kind of worries me. Jesus said, live by the sword and you'll die by the sword. Yet Paul seems to teach that uh, God has granted the sword to the principalities and the powers. And he also says we battle against principalities and powers. And wasn't it the principalities and powers that crucified Jesus? So what should we do about the tax collector? I don't know. And what should we do about the prostitutes? I don't know. I'm not sure. What do we do about sexual promiscuity in our culture? I'm not exactly sure. What do we do about things like the gay marriage amendment? Why do we think... Why did we ever think that a bunch of senators with some trophy wives could legislate marriage? I mean, why did we, why did we ever think that in the first place? And what about abortion? I'm rather horrified by abortion. And I preached about it plenty in the past, but I struggle to even talk about it now. I'm not concerned for the babies. I think Jesus has shown me in rather miraculous ways. He has all the babies. I'm concerned for the mothers. And not that God the Father is angry with them, but they have such a hard time believing now that he loves them. So what should we do? How should we vote? Some studies indicate that abortion rates are highest in countries that have some of the strictest laws against abortion and lowest in the countries that have the best health care. And yet many people get their morals from their government. So exactly what should we do? I really don't know. And I would like to know, but I don't know. And I do know that I really don't know, but I know that you want me to know. In fact, that's the very reason that most people go to church. We want the pastor to give us more of that knowledge of good and evil so we can act some more legislation enforce some more compliance through a system of rewards and punishment that is lust and fear and now listen that is exactly what governments should do and that is what we could do if we pay particular attention to certain verses in the Old Testament or use a book like the Quran. Well, I don't know what we, as an institution, should do. But, but I see a bit of what Jesus does do. And it's strange. Jesus is strange. And his attitude towards sin is strange. The biblical word for strange is, is holy. You know, no one had a greater interest in destroying sin than Jesus. And no one had a greater love for sinners. That's strange. Check this out. Jesus felt sorrow for sinners. Let's be honest. We're usually jealous of sinners. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, the will of my father. So for Jesus... Not sinning was like eating pizza. 
his food. And sinning was like a starvation diet. Sinning was like eating dirt. My son Coleman, when he was little, he got addicted to dirt or something. I mean, I'd catch him in the backyard eating dirt. I'd, he'd, I'd, I'd catch him. It was the, the mud caked around his little chubby cheeks. And I'd say, Coleman, have you been eating dirt? And he'd look up at me with those big eyes and go, no, daddy, I haven't been eating dirt. And I'd say, Coleman, listen to me. If, if you keep eating dirt, I'm going to make you eat dirt. All sin is like eating dirt. Jesus saw sin as its own punishment. We see sin as our reward. So we say stuff like this. Don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. And God will reward you with streets of gold. Just think of that. Streets of, streets of gold. A mansion. Streets. <laughs> Forgive your enemies so that God will reward you and He'll torture your enemies forever and ever and, and, and ever. But Jesus saw sin as its own punishment. So once you see your sin, there is no need to be punished for your sin. Sin is a lack of faith in love that renders a person totally alone. Sin is the deepest hell. Julian of Norwich wrote this, a medieval mystic who had this amazing vision of Jesus. She wrote, and I was shown no harder hell than sin. Because for a well-intentioned soul, there is no hell but sin. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But we act like he saves us so we could sin. Sin is being trapped in the self. And we think salvation is all about saving ourselves. It's all about finding ourselves, coming to ourselves, all about our lonely self. Here's another one. Jesus saw sin as bondage. We talk about sin as if it's freedom. And I don't know how to quite say this next one, but Jesus didn't seem to blame sinners for their sin. And we think it's not sin unless we can blame the sinner for the sin. And don't get me wrong. I mean, Jesus would say that we all chose sin. So I'm, I'm not saying that we didn't choose sin. We, we chose sin. And yet I think he would also say we couldn't have chosen to not sin. Actually, with Jesus, it's like folks are chosen to choose sin. <laughs> like sin is part of the plan, and it's always been part of the plan. Judas was chosen. And all that crap that happened to Jesus, it was part of the plan. From the foundation of the world. Dang, just look at his stories. If anyone is to blame for a lost coin, it's not the coin, it's the woman. If anybody's to blame for a lost sheep, it's not the, it's not the sheep, it's, it's the shepherd. John 12, 39, quoting Isaiah, it reads like this. He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. He's talking about the Pharisees. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and uh, turn and I would heal them. Jesus quotes that line in all the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels. He quotes it there to explain his attitude uh, towards sin and why people do sin. Jesus doesn't blame us for sin and he treats it like it's some sort of disease, a disease of the mind so so people can't see the way or a disease of the heart so they can't choose the way on the cross he cried out father forgive them for they know not 
what they do. He didn't blame us. And it was all according to plan. And this next one is wild. Jesus hates sin, but is attracted to sinners. We, on the other hand, are repulsed by sinners, but attracted to sin. Jesus is attracted to sinners, and it seems to me that he's attracted in the very place of their sin. In other words, he asks us to confess our sin, to surrender our sin, to not hide our sin. Sin is the Greek word hamartia. It's, it's not something you do as much as something that you fail to do. So God didn't create sin. Sin is the absence of his creation. And so he doesn't make us sin. However, he does consign us to sin. Hamartia in classical Greek is missing the mark or a failure to reach the goal. Now listen closely. Jesus is the goal. Sin is an absence of truth, and Jesus is the truth. Sin is an absence of love, and Jesus is the presence of love. Sin is an absence of the good, and God alone is good. And Jesus is God in the flesh. Truth in love, hanging on a tree in a garden. Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is attracted to an absence of himself in you. Jesus is attracted to sinners, like a groom is attracted to his bride. And sinners, sinners who know that they're sinners, sinners are attracted to Jesus. Jesus is attractive to them. Do you ever ponder that? I mean, it's just amazing to me that, that Jesus would host dinners for sinners, but it's even more amazing that sinners would want to go. I mean, they knew that he hated sin. And yet I guess his eyes would like dilate when he saw sinners, when he saw them. He came to call sinners. Why? Because he wanted to. So what did Jesus do about sin? Well, it appears that he hosted dinners for sinners. Last week, someone sent me this fascinating little video about a science experiment. It has to do with addiction. The biblical term for addict is sinner. That is someone enslaved to sin. Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex. Everything a rat about town could want and they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. 
none of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone, it might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds. We will bond with something because that is our nature. Why is that our nature? Well, I just thought that was a fascinating concept. Well, rats are put in cages, but sinners are born sinners and construct their own cages. I mean, as we noted last time, there was a time before you had the knowledge of good and evil. But it appears that you were born with sin or in sin as you were born a sinner. Romans 7, Paul talks as if he was born with sin, but he didn't know sin until he learned the law and, quote, sin came to life and he became addicted to sin and trapped in himself. In the garden, Adam had sin, but he didn't know it was sin until he took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and sin. But before he took the fruit, Adam, which means an mankind, Ad Adam was alone. How do we know that? Because God said he was alone. He said, it's not good for the Adam, mankind, to be alone, disconnected. That's, that's sin. So think about that. Adam couldn't find his helper, uh, and yet he was standing right next to his helper. He was alone. Adam was alone in the presence of God. Three persons, one substance. God is love. God is the ultimate party. God was like a rat in rat heaven, unable, I mean, Adam was like a rat in, in rat heaven, unable to enjoy rat heaven. Adam was with the good, but couldn't choose the good, for he didn't know the good. God is the good. Adam needed help, but couldn't trust his helper. Jesus means God is help. God is salvation. It means helper. It was like the kingdom of heaven for Adam was at hand. God was his and all that he has was his. Always was his. Always would be his. All his. But he couldn't trust God for he hadn't seen God's heart. Sin is a lack of faith in love. And Jesus is the word of love from the bosom of the Father. Broken and bleeding and hanging on a tree in a garden. Jesus is the good. The Pharisees wanted to use the good. The sinners were drawn to the good because they were beginning to love the good, and that's good. When I'm lifted up, I will draw, said, said Jesus. 
Well, anyway, I, I don't know. I'm saying I don't know what the U.S. government should do about sin. But Jesus reveals what God does do about sin. The Pharisees grumble that Jesus hosts dinners for sinners. And Jesus tells about a woman that finds a lost coin, a shepherd that finds a lost sheep, and a father that finds a lost boy. And this is how he finds them. We'll preach, we'll preach about this next story uh, next week. But, but I want to at least read it now. Lost sheep, lost coin, next verse. And Jesus said there was a man who had had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property. Now, this is fascinating. The word is usios in Greek. It means substance. That's fascinating in the history of the church because the early church uh, decided uh, that Jesus was of the same usia, uh, homo usia, as his father. Father, give me the share of the usios that is coming to me. What a statement. And he divided his bion, it means life or livelihood, is where we get our word biology. He divided his life between them. In that culture, this request was an unheard of evil. The son is basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, and I want your stuff. It's sin. And this is what God the Father does. This is what the Father does. He lets him. Sin. He lets both boys sin. He divides his substance between them and gives them his life. But don't think that the father is ignoring sin. Grace has nothing to do with ignoring sin. In fact, grace reveals sin. Do you realize that every time you commit sin, you, you, you break God's substance and take God's life? Sin hurts you. Sin hurts other people. And most of all, sin hurts God. And this is the first thing God does about it. He lets you commit it. Even arranges for you to commit it. I mean, it was no accident that the tree was placed right there in the middle of the garden. And Eve, it's no accident she bumped into that evil talking snake. In the Revelation, after all the drama, people always ask about the Revelation. You know, what do we do? Blah, blah, blah. And the lake of fire. After the whole thing, the last chapter of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus says this. Let, let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. What do we do about sin? In last chapter, he says, let them sin. Well, I find that to be a, a bit shocking, don't you? That he would let them sin. And, and yet, he lets you sin. I bet this afternoon, you're going to sin. Probably during the Bronco game, you'll sin. <laughs> he, lets, he lets you he, he lets you. He lets you sin. You already have sin, and every day he lets you commit. He must be hoping that you'll just like get sick of sin. Recently, a friend shared a vision with me. She saw herself sitting as a little child in the very bottom of a swimming pool, holding her breath. She said she looked up and she saw Jesus sitting on the diving board, just, just laughing and waving at her and kicking his legs, waiting for her to come up. She said he would have sent down a respirator if that's what I need, but she said he was happy. He was just waiting for me to come up. Sin, you see, is our own will, and Jesus came to save us from our will. So he allows us to exercise our will until we're sick of our will and want to join his party. He lets us be lost 
So we would want to be found. You, you can't enjoy being found until you realize you're lost. I'm tired of the bottom of the pool. Well, the father divides his biome between them. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his usios in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, now let me ask you, according to Jesus, is salvation Finding yourself or losing yourself? When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, he practices a speech. He comes up with a speech. And I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If this boy thought he could make himself worthy of being a son, he don't understand what it is to be a son. He doesn't even see his father's heart. This is his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Hired servants. See, he wants to earn his father's stuff. He doesn't want to be a son. He wants to be an employee. He doesn't want his father. He wants his father's stuff. He doesn't love his father. He only uses his father. He's come to himself, and now he's trapped in himself. He's still lost, never more so lost. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, practicing his speech. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He he embraced him like I embraced Elizabeth on the side of the pool. And the Greek implies that he kissed his son over and over and over and over again and would not stop kissing him. All before the son could say anything. Promise anything. Do anything. Verse 21. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, period. Now, Jesus is the master storyteller. And uh, he has the son repeat his speech, but leave out the last line. That's for a reason. Uh, the son doesn't want to say it, or the father interrupts him before he can say it, the last line. You see, the father doesn't want an employee. He never wanted an employee. He doesn't need an employee. He wants a son. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They. The boy no longer wants to be an employee. He wants to be a son. He's lost his old will. And he has a new will. He has a new mind. He has a new heart. And it was his father's kindness that found him and led him to repentance. Jesus is Emmanuel. God the Father with us, finding us out on the road. So what does God do about sin? Well, kind of the 
really obvious one. Number one, he lets us sin. And number two, at the right time, he ambushes us with grace. And that creates faith. And we're justified by faith, made right by faith in the image of God. And God does not sin. So what should we do about sin? Well, we should be honest about sin. But we must allow people to sin and suffer their sin. And if possible, when we're able, host a few dinners for sinners. You may be saying, well, that's, that's a nice thought, preacher boy. But if you live that way, you'll get yourself crucified that way. Yep. The prodigal son enjoys dinners for sinners, but his older brother does not. His older brother was in the field, verse 25. We'll read the rest of the story next week. He, he comes to the party, and then he leaves the party and stands in outer darkness. He's angry that his father allowed his little brother to sin, and yet this older brother knows nothing but sin. He believes he's worthy to be a son. And that's why the party burns his pride, his ego, his prison, himself, his sin. That's why he hates the lost and wants them to stay lost. But in fact, he himself is most lost. He stands in outer darkness and the father comes and stands with him. And says to him, you are always with me. And all that's mine is yours. What a statement. He lets him sin. And then he ambushes him in the darkness with a banquet of grace. And that's where the story ends in Luke chapter 15. Jesus said, many will come from east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Who throws them? It seems the sons throw themselves into outer darkness. Well, as you know, it's because of Jesus' dinners for sinners that the Pharisees get so angry that they take his life on the tree in the garden and cast themselves into outer darkness. And yet on that tree in the garden, God the Father and Christ Jesus descends into darkness and he descends into every dark field. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, out on the road and finding us in every dark field. That's Jesus. And on the night we betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. Drink of it, all of you. This is dinner for the sinner. And hey, we're sinners. And look, God has already divided his substance between us. 
and already given his life to us. This is dinner for the sinner. It destroys your old will and gives you a new will. And that is God's will. And God's will is free. Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. They're both the love of the Father poured out, given to you. And so close your eyes. And I want you to think of, of a sin. Preferably a sin that you've repeated several times. Preferably one that makes you want to hide. It makes you incredibly embarrassed. You don't want anybody else in this room to know about it. I want you to think of yourself sinning that sin. You got it? Now I want to tell you something. God is watching you. What is his attitude toward you at this moment? Now there's a lie. There's a lie that's been spoken into humanity about his attitude. And there's the truth. Jesus said, call him dad. Now, for some of you, that terrifies you. For some of you, you just got a glimmer of hope. He's a good dad. Does he love you less right now? No. How did I feel when I saw Elizabeth at the, at the bottom of the pool? And I had told her not to go close to the pool. And she saw something in the pool. I probably wanted to play with a ball in the pool or something. How did I feel toward her? How does God feel toward you? Does he love you less? No, if anything, he loves you more. And you see, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, you felt that feeling, haven't you? And how does Jesus feel toward you? Well, let me tell you, his love burns for you. Do you trust him? Can you understand that? Are you terrified of that? Or if you trust that, do you invite that? Will you, will you let him love you in this place? Because he longs to love you in this place and give you life. If you let him love you, And, and he's the one that even gives you the ability for that to happen. If, if, if you let him love you, well, you know what? You will know what to do when the crowd throws a prostitute at your feet. You will know what to do when you stumble upon a tax collector at the side of a crowd who nobody wants to talk to. 
you will know what to do when a Pharisee comes to you in the middle of the night with a world of guilt on his shoulders, eating away at his heart. And you will know uh, what to say to the crowd. You will know when it's time to preach an angry sermon about woe upon you. And you'll know when it's time to make a whip of cords and drive them out of the temple. And you'll know when it's time to let them pound the nail. You will love because God has loved you. And so by way of benediction, I'm just saying, believe the gospel and host some dinners for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we have some amazing givers at our church. And it was through two investors that we were able to acquire this building. And uh, we really were looking for two years for a smaller building, but they were all too expensive and, we, expensive and we couldn't find any that worked. And so amazingly, we moved into this building saving $4,000 a month and not paying rent, but now having a mortgage. But still, so far this year, our income has been $140,000 less than our expenses, and it's been less than, less than last year. Um, and I don't think we should panic for several reasons, because giving always increases around uh, Christmas, and also because God's kingdom will come. I think he wants to use the sanctuary to do that. But if the giving doesn't happen, well, he'll do it another way. But I think he wants to do it this way. And so that's why I've asked you to pray about your giving as we go into the end of the year. Um, and I'm also saying this to our online community. I mean, this is kind of fascinating, but we probably have as many or more people that watch sermons online. So I ask these guys to record this little call for the offering because I, I want to ask, uh, I want to ask you all uh, on, I don't know where the cameras are, online or in here to pray about giving because I do think God has called us to an amazing ministry. And ironically, our ministry is to preach to the world that Jesus really has paid it all. And uh, that's incredibly good news. So if we don't give, the kingdom of God will still come, but I think it will still come, but I think he, he wants to manifest his kingdom in this world uh, th through us. So anyway, as we take the offering, w would you give out of a heart of gratitude? And then would you also pray, Lord, what, what do you want me to give? And for some of you, I think that means uh, money. Uh, probably means money for, for all of us in some form or another. It, it may be your time um, because, you know, in, the, in America we pay pastors, um, but that's not the way it has been with most of the world. People just volunteered for everything. And that's why I'd like you to fill out a green card or yellow card or a blue card uh, at some point and put it in the offering plate because, you see, that really is your offering. The other way that you can really give to our church is invite friends and, and family on November 15th for our open house. And that will help us. That would be, be great because we'd just love to invite more people into our fellowship. It would also solve our sound problems because the more large, soft people we have, the less of an echo we have in the sanctuary. So anyway, just give. I, I, I'm, I'm inviting you to give and do it out of a, a grateful heart, all right? Not out of panic or fear, but because you love the Lord and you want the world to know that he's good.